to the end of the year of 2022 going it's almost 2023 it's hard to believe but uh pretty soon it's going to be the 11th anniversary of this show which is kind of crazy to me if you really think about it but uh we've got some esteemed conspiranormalists yeah yeah tonight uh we are going to just do something a little different and something we haven't actually done in a while which is more kind of a round table format uh so we've got a couple of our favorite people here that are big fans of conspiranormal and we're fans of them so it all works out uh but we've got uh, vincent treewell happy to be here no place to rather be awesome happy to have you vincent Lurking in the shadows. Yeah, but, uh, <laughs> you like one of those uh, one of those shows with like an old FBI informant or something. We just need to put a that's right. Put a vocal yeah. effect on you. Yeah, put that weird voice box effect on you. Undisclosed location. Yeah, Vincent Treewell from an undisclosed location in, in the Nevada test site. <laughs> and we've got uh, Chris Corey is here with us as well. Chris has been on the show before. Good evening, guys. Good evening, Chris. And uh, we're going to talk about what you guys have been getting into. and uh, But I do have a couple of topics that, we, that I want to cover. But I thought we would start off with you, Vincent, just to kind of get the ball rolling. Um, I listened to the next to last one that you did uh, on the weird part about the John Bidet Ramsey murder, uh, which I thought was real interesting. Um, it was kind of cool to get your take on it. If you guys want to find that, you can find that at uh, uh, Vincent's uh, podcast called The Weird Part. But let's talk a little bit about what your your thoughts are on that. I mean, I have my own, but uh, I kind of felt like when I was listening to it, I was like, well, what about this, Vincent? What about that? And you kind of covered all the bases. <laughs> well, I'm going to have to do a follow-up because yeah. people dumped a ton of messages of what about this and what about that. And, you know, you'll have to tell me what those were, what some of those people were saying. But yeah, let's keep going. Yeah. There's so much evidence and so many theories in the JonBenet Ramsey murder that, I mean, we could do an entire... <laughs> multi-episode well there's been two podcasts on just that killing you know there's a vast array of information um when i looked into it there was the a list of the the most 15 most important books about the john may ramsey murder i've read about half of them um there's just a ton of information out there and all the interviews and everything but where i really where i was really going was I used to have very strong views on this one way. And years later, I reserved the right to change my mind. And I was persuaded that, no, that's all wrong. And I have very strong views the other way. Um, when it first happened, and I remember it happening, um, 1996, Christmas Day, um, the day afterwards when they discovered her body, and being just persuaded by the media coverage that these people are deviants and they murdered their daughter and tried to cover it up. 
And that's what I think most of the country believes. But when you really take that apart, it makes absolutely no sense. It's just tabloid crap. And it played on the ignorance of the public, of which I am part. I didn't know the child pageants were a thing. I didn't know because that was what really struck me as a 25-year-old working class guy. Wait, they're dressing their six-year-old up like she's 21? I mean, what, what the hell? What the hell's wrong with these people? You right. know? And that clouded everything else. And then they announced, like, in big, you know, letters, the pen and the paper came from within the house. And that must prove they did it. Well, that doesn't really prove anything. I mean, in and of itself, if you intrude, you break into somebody's home, they're not going to have paper and pen somewhere. They're not going to have anything to write with in the entire house, really. You know, that doesn't mean anything. And as far as a cover-up, this is like the worst cover-up possible. You don't cover up a kidnapping, a murder by staging a kidnapping. That you know you're going to have the FBI involved. You're going to have the cops take apart every square inch of your house. You don't, you know, if you're trying to cover something up, you would take, if one family member has killed another family member and you're trying to do damage control, you would maybe take the child to the hospital and say she fell down the stairs. That would be a cover-up. Making a fake ransom note and doing all these things while the body's still in the house is like the opposite of a cover-up. It's a way to draw that is guaranteed draw more attention. And so there was another case. Um, years, well, let me try to go in a little bit of chronological order. So JonBenet Ramsey's killed, and I'm like everybody, pretty sure that the parents had something to do with it, did it. One of the at least one of the parents knew what happened and did the thing that happened. Then over time, Elizabeth Smart is kidnapped by an intruder. And we know that happened because they caught the intruder and he's currently doing the rest of his life in prison. But that happened. They were rich people and in Salt Lake City, and a stranger did break into their home and took their daughter. He wasn't actually a stranger, though. That's the You're correct. Go ahead. He, he worked for the Smart family. He had done some kind of... He had done some kind of uh, construction work or some kind of carpentry work or something that he had done on their home. And he actually saw her. So he was actually, I think, known to the, uh, to the, to the family, to the mother and the father. Yes, Mr. Uh, Smart had helped out a guy who was down in his luck by having him do some carpentry work and, yeah. you know, do some jobs around the house. And he was kind of, uh, I believe he was homeless at the time. Yeah, I think I, they, I think they were homeless the whole time. Like, Yes, you're correct. They, yeah. Um, but yes, but I was at the time really judgmental of the smarts. I just, that, that didn't ring true to me at all because, you know, the press. Um, and maybe I wasn't as sophisticated as I am. Hopefully I've <laughs> matured and gained a little bit of insight over the years. And I just thought that, that story didn't make any sense and they probably killed their daughter. And then the daughter was found alive. And I feel like if the intruder had killed her, they would have been treated a lot like the Ramses. And that started to kind of shake my thinking 
But then a, I was watching, listening to an episode of This American Life, and which is like the most mainstream podcast you could possibly find. And they were talking about a really terrible case where this young woman was raped. And the police not only didn't believe her, but coerced a confession out of her where she confessed that nothing happened. She made it up and filed a false police report. And she was convicted of obstructing um, and had a criminal record because they just did not believe her and pressed her to confess. Well, years later, the serial rapist was caught and had her picture, had had taken her picture while she was tied up and had a picture of her driver's license as part of the picture because he was the type of person who collects trophies and shit like that. He's caught and he's put away for life. And one of the big things that they used as evidence that nothing happened years earlier was that all the objects used in the crime came from within in her own house. And that was like the bombshell thing, but it turned out that that's what he did. Why bring any, if I bring an object to a crime scene, that's a link to me. If I use things that are already there, it's a lot harder to solve. And that's why he got away with so many assaults. And that really made me think. Um, it's called anatomy of doubt um, at the, uh, you know, the NPR podcast, the uh, This American Life. Um, and that made me think, well, wait a minute. Maybe the fact the pen and paper in the Ramsey case wasn't that important. Maybe that meant literally nothing. And maybe I need to look at this whole thing again. And I did. And read a couple more books and said, no, that doesn't make any sense at all. Um, I'd have to agree with retired FBI agent, um, whose name is not I'm blanking on now, but um, who did a profile on John Ramsey and said there's no possible way he's involved in this. He's just not. And there was a experienced homicide detective named Lou Schmidt who was brought in as an outside expert because Boulder PD has so few homicides. They wanted an experienced investigator to come in. And he didn't believe that either of the Ramseys had anything to do with it and that there had been an intruder and that a slightly built person could easily have entered their basement and thereby entered the house and done the crime and it would look just the way it looked. And that that is where I really changed my mind about it. And so I was trying to think, well, you know, what what else could have happened? And it's just my theory, and it's one theory among many. But I believe that John Ramsey probably knew who did it, but I believe that it was perhaps a mistress from his past. And that John Bonet winning that pageant and being Little Miss Boulder triggered her, and she retaliated against John Ramsey by harming his daughter and setting him up in a way that she wrecked his life completely. And he did not reveal her identity because, okay, his daughter's been killed, the family's under suspicion, coming forward and saying, I had an affair would destroy whatever was left in his life. But years later, he's now asking for 
further investigation. In fact, he threatened to sue the state to make them do their job and then reinvestigate this further. And it is being reinvestigated further. And generally, people who've gotten away with a murder don't keep asking for it to be looked into. You know, investigate this some more and see if you can find something. If you've gotten away with a crime, why would you do that? And I think the time has passed. His wife has died. Um, his kids are much older. He is willing to let the truth come out if um, it goes that way. That's just my speculation, but that's, that is my speculation. So he has, I guess, in recent years, you know, been pressing for them to reopen it. And I guess it never really was closed, but you know what I mean? Like it was, you know, reopen the case and look at it again. He's, so he's made these statements recently. Yes. Uh, well, he threatened to sue the state of Colorado and the state of Colorado, he has dropped that now. The state of Colorado is authorizing a team of experts that are independent of the Boulder Police Department, independent of Boulder City or um, the local sheriff's department. They will be a team of outsiders, but outside experts qualified by the state to look into all aspects of the Ramsey case. And they're looking into retesting some untested DNA, but also looking at everything that they have and seeing if they can come to a conclusion. And that's supposed to start early next year. Okay. So we may see some movement on it. It just seems like after, I mean, what, it's been 26 years at this point? Like, it just seems like, you know, we're we're never probably going to really know. It's Um, possible. I mean, it it may just be like the Lindbergh baby case, just unsolved forever. Because I know a few things about it. And whenever I was listening to you talk about it on, on the show, uh, it kind of really reminded me of the Lindbergh baby case. How so there's all these, you know, weird loose ends that never seem to be quite tied up. And um, now, you know, a couple of things. And one of the things you did answer for me was that, you know, there's always been some suspicion about the about her brother. I think that the idea there is that there might have been not any malicious intent, but maybe they were roughhousing, and he might have hurt her accidentally and she might have died and And i can believe that there may have been a cover-up by the parents so that it wasn't implicated because if you you basically if you have a one child that kills another albeit accidentally you're gonna you're gonna lose both so i mean it it could possibly be that you know that that's that's been one of the most compelling things for me i could believe certainly that a nine-year-old boy could hit his sister with a pipe or something or push her down the stairs in a moment of anger and you know she bumps she bumps her head on the cement or something and, and dies but to me if you're going to cover that up you take her to the hospital and yeah. say that you know something sort of like that happened and you know avoid his you know his anger or his lashing out his violence but you you don't concoct this bizarre kidnapped by terrorist thing, which is just going to get so much more attention. And, you know, the other thing, if they just had taken her to a hospital and said she had an accident, you know, this, she fell off of this or dropped something on, you know, something happened. They probably, their influence probably would have been enough to get that not looked at in a bad way. They probably could have done that if that's what happened. But this just seems so over the top. It reminded me of the Leopold and Loeb case, where 
two guys murder this younger boy for no real reason other than because we can type of thing, but then pretend it's a kidnapping and send his father a ransom note. And it's elaborate and do all this like, you know, entanglements that eventually they, they just get caught and they get put away for life. But it's, you know, it, it seemed if you're just going to try to cover up the kind of horse between kids that sometimes something terrible does happen, you wouldn't go to those ridiculous lengths. And if you're going to stage a kidnapping, you wouldn't do it like that. The first, if you're cold blooded enough to stage the kidnapping of your child, however she died, wouldn't you get rid of the body first? You know, before you call, what's the big hurry to call the cops? They call the cops early in the morning. Well, why not like stage it properly and call them, you know, at noon and say, everybody slept in and then we found this and we have this ransom note and they've got my child. They, it doesn't, it just seems as a cover up, just an incredibly ineffective one. And these weren't, you know, scared teenagers on drugs. I mean, these are, you know, fairly middle aged, sophisticated people that are wealthy and know how things work. And that's not going to work. There's no way in hell that, that, that kind of cover up's going to work. But, yeah. you know, the, the, the tabloids liked it. <laughs> yeah, it was very, it was very much a sensationalist type of case. The handwriting itself, was it deemed to have been a woman that wrote it? Could they tell? Was it? To the best of my knowledge, there has never been an official finding of hand, the handwriting matched anybody. Yeah. Um, as far as male or female, I don't think they can tell that really. Like, I don't think men and women necessarily write very differently. Um, so it's kind of the handwriting analysis has kind of been a dead end. The word choices, you get people on both sides. You get people who say it sounds like it was written by Patsy Ramsey. But you get other people who have found the opposite, that it seems to have written been written by a man in his 20s who watches a lot of movies. So, you know, it, it's kind of a wash, really. Well, there was also the weird guy that, you know, John Mark Carr, who confessed to, to, confessed to it. Yes. And later recanted, but they found out that there was no way that... I don't think he actually recounted. I think they found out that there's no way he could have done it. No, absolutely. The evidence proved him innocent of that. Of course, he was... But that was a bizarre... That was a bizarre thing. I mean, that was really strange. But he just... He was caught for child molesting in Thailand, and he just badly wanted to get the hell out of Thailand at, at all costs. And so he confessed to something that... He undoubtedly knew there's no way in hell they could put this on me because I, he wasn't in the state at the time that this occurred. You know, there have been a, a lot of speculations. There's, there's probably almost as much John Bonnet Ramsey information or content total as there is on like one of the Kennedy assassinations. It's just huge. Yeah. Yeah. I can remember when it happened, but I can remember just not caring about it whatsoever. I I mean, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't something that it just seemed like it was, you know, just the tabloid fodder, really sensational. You know, it's like, Oh, a little beauty queen girl got killed, which is, which was weird. Like you said, you know, and it's just like, you kind of just, I don't want anything to do to do with this, but I think, Later on, I kind of, you know, kind of saw a couple of documentaries about it and found it to be really interesting. 
I guess because the you know the the sensationalism had died down essentially. I learned one thing from they did a a big uh, special on the twenty year anniversary, and one of the networks walked through the house, and I was just amazed. I guess I've only lived in like middle class houses. Um, their house was so huge that when one of the problems I had with, was with the original story was that now how could an intruder be walking around in there and nobody heard it? Well, okay, it was a mansion, and her room was like I want to say not a, it can't be a hundred yards, but a long ways from the nearest other room. And there's like a big game room that's like probably about the size of most of my house in between. And so, yeah, it, it was believable that an outsider came in and took her. That, mm-hmm. that to me is more possible than ever having seen that. I mean, there's, there's a lot, there's a lot of loose ends that will probably never be tied up, but because there's the un, the unexplained male DNA, but it's touch DNA. So it may mean nothing. It may mean a contaminated crime scene. It may, or it may be somebody that was involved. It's, there's just, there's a lot of angles to it. And that's why it's kind of, you know, held my interest for many years. So it's either that somebody went in there and they attempted to kidnap her and it went really badly wrong, or they just killed her out of some kind of spite, uh, probably against either because it was a mistress or maybe Mr. Ramsey owned owed some money. And that's another possibility too. Um, the, the, uh, the two, John Ramsey spoke with the police very briefly before he lawyered up and people have made a, a big deal out of the fact that he exercised his right to an attorney, but his daughter has been murdered. If the police are accused, have already decided that you did it and are accusing you of it. You'd be in, you'd be crazy not to get an attorney, you know that that's always been played as well. He lawyered up. Why doesn't he care about his daughter? His daughter's dead, and the cops are trying to put, pin it on him. Of course, he's going to get a lawyer, you know. Um, and as the the cops decided while you know when the body was found that he was guilty, there the interview with the first detective from Boulder PD on the scene. She seems crazier than anybody that comes off in the case. I mean, she's just like, she's certain that he did it at that second. She's certain. It's like, but you don't have any evidence that really shows that at all, you know? Um, So, but he did make one brief statement to the police before he got an attorney. And they asked him, well, who do you think would do something like this? And he said that there's two possibilities. Somebody who's angry about something that happened in business. Um... Or maybe it was a girl I used to date, which seemed rather strange because that would be quite a few years ago if you're dating before you got married, unless you're dating somebody while you're married. And that's kind of where I came with that that theory. Um, but yeah, there have been people who've speculated that he got somebody fired or somebody didn't like the way a business deal went and that that was their motive. One final thing I'll say about this real quick, and then let you guys you guys chime in, is that um, uh, Dave McGowan <laughs> wrote about this in Program to Kill, and you remember this, Sergio? 
I don't remember what he said about. about, So I remember what he. It's very satanic, panicky, real kind of what you would now really say is QAnon kind of stuff, but that it was all part of some like fertility sex ritual. You're nodding your head, Chris Corey. I can tell you you're familiar with this. I remember this. I I I don't go in. I'm not not big in the uh, the unsolved child murder. tracked but uh i do remember this specifically um uh, reading it maybe about 10 years after the fact i remember program to kill being referenced yeah yeah it's pretty crazy the things that he says and and i mean that that book we talked about it a long time ago on this show i i don't know where begowan's headspace was when he wrote this thing <laughs> He's pretty far out. Yeah, he has some some good points, but you know when you get to the John Bonnet Ramsey stuff, it, it it got it it gets crazy. It gets way out there. I mean, it's child sacrifice and weird rituals because it happened around Christmas time, and you know all this kind of stuff. I am familiar with his work. I haven't read it recently. Um, I've never really believed that there was in this particular case a real occult angle people tried to find one hard but i just feel like if that was going to be the case it wouldn't be on the front page she would just be disappeared and there would be nothing you know it she'd either be missing or they wouldn't have used a child of such a wealthy family but people have said, well, you have to make a sacrifice to go forward in the organization or something like that. But I don't think any there's any real evidence to back that up. And I, I just don't think it'd be done so publicly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's one of those I think this has been used. And I, I think, Serfiel, you there's, there's like some apocalypse culture stuff that this was written about in apocalypse culture too. Yeah, uh, Peter Sotos... Uh, wrote an article being um, uh, critical of the media's what he characterized as prurient interest in it. Um, yeah, I don't really want to get into it. It gets gets pretty pretty dark. Very interesting. I I just don't know if it's something that's ever going to be resolved and solved. It's probably going to be one of those. It's just like you know, well, probably one of the biggest unsolved murders ever. So. One of the cases of the century that, yeah, yeah every century has several. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Crime is the century, right? Well, I guess since we're on the murder track. Yeah. Let's, yeah. Let's keep going. Um, someone pointed out to me how it was strange that we, you know, interviewed Dr. Richard Spence about uh, these various themes of occult murders. I think right before these murders happened in that town in, uh, Moscow, where the Idaho State University is it? Is that the right university? University of Idaho, rather. Um, but yeah, this is pretty wild. They still don't really know anything, it looks like. This has been over a month now. And for anyone who's been under a rock, four of these students got uh, stabbed to death, like in the middle of the night. Uh, two roommates, they don't, I don't know if they know whether they came home after or not, but. Uh, two other roommates uh, were in the house and apparently didn't hear anything and uh, no one alerted authorities until like almost noon the next day Uh, there was a a dog that was still there and unharmed 
And one of the victims... Yeah, there's also, I thought there was like a dead dog that was found somewhere around there. But the police said there was nothing involved about it. But the media yeah, still I don't, reported it. I don't know, but the sleuths yeah, are going was, absolutely like insane a, with this. Two or three days after. And like every, I was telling you guys, like every day I'm seeing like psychics on YouTube going live and channeling information and all this shit and like... The sleuths are just having a field day. Uh, hasn't popped up yet on um, Lauren Coleman's <laughs> Twilight Language blog. I kind of expected really? it to, that's, that's, but uh, that's, that's I think he might be kind of easing off some of this stuff. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, that was that's pretty. It's really strange. Um, they really don't know anything. I guess there's a lot of speculation about this. Uh, the hoodie guy who was at the food truck where the last footage of, of uh, two of the victims was taken before they went back to this home. and So who knows if anything's going to come of this, but uh, we haven't had one like this in quite some time. Totally unsolved, brutal murders like this. That is really amazing to me that some people were there, but apparently untouched, and that this was done with, not, you know, stabbing. I mean... It's hard to do, you know, that's just really weird circumstances. Yeah. One of them fought back apparently because they had wounds that indicated that, but yeah, there's a three, it was three girls and a, and a guy. Yeah. yeah. And it just sounds like, you know, either there were multiple assailants. How do you control four people long enough to stab them to death? Well, they were probably partying and like, pretty much asleep you know so he may have just been creeping around you know but yeah it reminds you of some of that program to kill type of shit yeah it also reminded me of amanda knox but um i was just that, thinking that yeah yeah right. <laughs> that which is a whole can of worms but yes um i just i always felt the u.s media was really quick to find her totally innocent of everything and that they basically parroted what her parents said, that she's far too nice a girl to do this. So she didn't do it. And it was a lot of the coverage that I saw was that, that basically they blamed her because she's an American and Italians hate Americans. And I'm like, I spent a year and a half in Italy and they don't hate Americans. That's ridiculous. It's, we're, we're fine. Okay. And they cleared a guy from Africa who's an immigrant to Italy and she did make a confession. So, I mean, it was not as cut and dried as they, you know, proclaimed. But the ball got rolling and the media got the narrative. And they got the narrative mostly from her parents and just took it with that, you know. They're calling this the, the King Road homicides now. So maybe there's huh. some. King Road. There's some kind of synchro mysticism in that. Well, I mean. I think that the police, they really, they, they, I think they're holding a lot of things, you know, pretty tight because yeah. they don't, you know, they want to make sure that you don't get a whole bunch of, they probably already have gotten a whole bunch of crackpots, but they probably want to make sure that they've, that they're doing everything right and that they're trying to, you know, I guess the latest thing now is this, is this white Hyundai. That they yeah. They're looking for a white, uh, 2011 through 13 Hyundai yeah. Elantra. Do they say why they're looking for that? Or they nope. say that's what they're see. So they're probably just, yeah, that's how things go. You yeah. Know. They're probably just operating on procedure here. They can't you know? uh, satiate 
the sleuths and conspiracy minded people, you know, who need like all the answers right away, no matter how far out they are. And that's how a lot of things get distorted because initial reports are always missing pieces or maybe even wrong, you know, um, and people can take that and draw a thread and pretend to have found something, but really it, it takes time and it takes, you know, accumulating evidence, analyzing it and tracking down where that may lead. You know, it's yeah. not going to be instant, you know. But after a while, if it goes cold, then you're going to be like, well, where is it? You know, I mean, well, what's going on? In this community, I mean, it's a lot of pressure on those authorities because this community is really, uh, you know, small and tight knit from what I hear. And um, you can't think that they have too many murders like this going on. No, not at all. A place like that. Yeah. But no clues at all in the way it happened. It's really impacting the student body there, especially. Right. Any insights into this, Chris? Thoughts that you might have? No, this is one I have not been following at all. Yeah, I've barely been following it myself. So, yeah. Yeah, uh, I mean, yeah, true crime is just not not where I go. Not normally uh, for me either. This one is particularly uh, strange, though. Vincent and I, I think, are the true crime buffs here. Yeah, you guys. guys are the six. (laughs) Well, I just try to stay out of the gore, and I try to stay out of the, you know, stuff that's just that. I don't like serial killer things. I don't. I, I don't find them interesting. But everybody loves a mystery. Yeah, exactly. You know, or unless there's just something really weird about a particular crime, um, that will draw my attention. You know, I just like the odd ones mm-hmm. um, that stand out. Not to, not so much the the blood and gut stuff. Sure, it's understandable. Uh, let's shift gears here. Uh, let's talk. No more murder. Yeah, no more murder. Well, you know, I don't know. There might be some murder. Let's talk about Graham Hancock Uh-oh. and Chris is laughing. I mean, I think a lot of people have probably talked about this, but we'll, we'll, we'll continue to beat it to death. The ancient apocalypse show that premiered on Netflix last month and the Joe Rogan appearance leading the, up to that. Yeah. The Joe Rogan appearance looked like a two or three days before, uh, with Randall, right? With Randall. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Randall. Yeah. Randall Carlson was on that as well. I mean, I can give you my thoughts on it or we can just, I got something that I want to read here, which is an opinion by Michael Hughes. But Vincent, I think you said, and Chris, you said you guys have not watched it, but you're familiar enough with Graham Hancock that I'm sure that you can draw your conclusions about what's in it. I don't, yeah, I think he doesn't bring any really new information, rather just brings it to a new audience, maybe. Yeah. He's been kind of pursuing a lot of these themes for quite a few years. It's a lot of the lost civilization and catastrophist uh, greatest hit stuff. But yeah, repackaged in a real nice, shiny presentation. I watched some of the show and, and you know, it's, it was good, good production. And, um, you know, some of the stuff is, is interesting, but it's really caused a, I guess it's really become a part of the larger culture wars. Somehow how that happened. I don't know, but yeah. Well, um, well, you know, I've, I've been into Graham Hancock stuff for a long, long time. Um, even before like Fingerprints of the Gods came out, I read Sign of the Seal, which was his book about the Ark of the Covenant, which is which I think is an excellent book. That kind of started him on that path 
with the sign and the seal, talk about the Ark of the Covenant, the fact that the Ark of the Covenant might have been some kind of ancient technology. And I think that that got the ball rolling for him to investigate all this other material that led to first fingerprints of the gods. And then there was magicians of the gods or something like that. Vincent, was that one of his books? Yes. Yes. Um, And then finally, like America before, which uh, just came out like a two or three years ago. Um, And so then he's had other books like supernatural, which is more about like the DMT experience and shamanism. And I've read, I think I've only read, you know, I've read, there's like another book that he did with uh, Robert Bavall about the Sphinx and all that. And so I've read, you know, some of his books and, you know, he's revised his theories a few different times. Mm -hmm. You know, he, in Fingerprints of the Gods, he was more leaning to the fact, leaning to like Antarctica was Atlantis, basically. Which, by the way, he never actually says Atlantis in in anything he does not really ever say atlantis um but it's just, the implied idea of it, a lost it's a, of, a, of a lost civilization yeah but he gets a lot of flack because of the whole atlantis thing yeah um but th- that's a whole you know we we can talk about that how why that's so complicated and all that but um so i've you know i've given a lot of thought to his theories and 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 especially you know having get to know know randall over the last few years and um how randall has you know really been looking at the whole comet impact theory that caused the younger dryas and that that fits in with some of, of of graham's work too and so they've kind of joined forces and um it really explains a lot of what could have happened at the basically the end of the last ice age and if there was an ancient civilization that could have been destroyed it's not so far-fetched for me necessarily it's a lot less far-fetched than like aliens you know you know what i mean which what's weird is in some of the criticisms people will say that he's actually spouting ancient alien stuff but he's not and so that's that's weird um, well, they're saying that it's got the same kind of assumptions um, that things had to be based on some kind of ultra diffusionist model. Right, right. And, and, that and, and these they, non, non-white people had to be taught these, yeah. you know, basically what we call a civilization. And it's an old thing, the whole like diffusionist. Yeah. Um, the diffusionist and whether the people came up, could have come up with things independently. That's an old debate. Um that kind of basically goes back even into like the 19th century. But, you know, I listened to the Joe Rogan and I've listened to other Joe Rogan um, episodes where he's been on with or without uh, Randall Carlson. And this last one, especially, I don't know if you guys heard it, but this last one, especially was just, it was, uh, it just, it just kind of devolved into like, well, you know the uh you don't trust any authority don't um don't don't listen to 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 anybody else um it he's got it to like it went even into like you know kind of like anti-lockdown or like anti-covid measure type of stuff being critical of that and how we get from you know the archaeologists don't like me to the anti-lockdown or anti-vaccine stuff how you get to that from one to the other um 
it just seemed like it was just a bunch of just complaining about just authority. That's all it really was. And there was no, there was really nothing constructive about it. There was nothing that was really edifying about it. Um, it just seemed like he was just really angry about not being taken seriously by a lot of people. And that's really all that I got out of that interview. There was nothing interesting or other interviews that I've heard with Graham. It's been interesting, you know, like, okay, that's cool. You know, and what Randall's talked about, but like they, they, they now kind of seem to be more moving into just like, you know, this whole conspirituality. It's the new anti-establishment countercultural milieu. Yeah. 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 And, and I told Serfiel, you know, we were talking about it and I was just like, you know, man, I agree with a lot of what Graham says. I think it's very interesting. It makes me think, but like, he's so railing against the archeological establishment and everything. It's like, I don't care. Like, honestly, you know, like it does not, I do not, I can't sleep at night because the archeological establishment <laughs> doesn't take Graham Hancock seriously. I, you know, it just it, it just seems so counterproductive. Yeah, he's counterproductive. not gonna get yeah, he's not you. gonna get the validation that he's looking for. Yeah. He is yeah. a popular writer. He's not an academic writer. He kinda wants his cake and eat it too. You know, I always go on and on and beat the dead horse that like you can't expect academia to co sign basically what what's your spirit quest. And I don't think you should really expect that. But, I mean, there is perfectly uh, valid criticism of different, uh, you know, ideological influences on academia, but people never, like, recognize the ideological source that a lot of those critiques are coming from also, you know? It's like not, they're not totally without their own slant, so. Well, let me get your thoughts on some of this, guys, and then I'll read this thing, that my, this uh, Twitter thread from Michael Hughes, which I think he states a lot of this pretty well, and then we'll kind of go from there, but... What are you, some of your thoughts on Hancock and just, I mean, and, and, and also want to add to like the guardian comes out with this like oh, was, yeah. article that says this is Graham Hancock's ancient apocalypse is the most dangerous uh, uh, documentary on Netflix, which is like the best thing they could do for him because yeah, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. Like it's, great. it's great publicity. Yeah. yeah, you're right. Well, yeah, the, I mean, Graham Hancock being on on the Rogan show and and doing a general um, anti-authoritarian rant is sort of like effectively the same thing as the Guardian doing a Graham Hancock is the most dangerous you know <laughs> yeah like, yeah it's like we know who our audience is um, and like I, I mean you said it all he doesn't write academic books. He writes, you know, he's he's like literally like a character out of a movie, you know, he's like not taken seriously by the establishment, you know, he wants to go his own way. You know, it's almost like he's written this like role for himself based off of like bad, you know, science fiction movies. Real um, life Indiana Jones. Type guy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess, but you know, like maybe he sees himself that way. To me, he's just he's are von daniken um he's he's looking at some things that are genuine mysteries or that genuinely maybe there is some hard research that could be done and then 
you know, right, saying some really wild things that can't really back up and then getting pissed when people who whose job but also like genuine only delight in life is 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 the the process the research and the the academy the like the the academia of it all and like of course those people aren't going to accept you especially if you're doing a shoddy job um and i mean i did not watch Graham's Joe Rogan interview. And I, I don't think I have uh, the time of my day for that, but, um, <laughs> but I thank you for your service. And I, I just, it was a long trip back from Atlanta. So I just, that's what I did. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even him writing like the DMT book, it's like, he knows who he's marketing that to and being on that show. It's like, if you go on the Joe Rogan show and you say, you know, the the establishment is holding me back and the establishment is telling me what i can and can't say you're going to sell more books because that's what the audience wants to hear and it's the biggest the biggest podcast audience that there is so it it like it, it makes it all makes sense to me um you know just as the guardian you know sort of like banging the you know pot with the big wooden spoon and saying that he's a threat to whatever because because it's easy because it's in vogue right now because like netflix has had a little bit of a tarnished reputation a few scandals in the past couple years and so this is another one that you know it, it, it's easy you know no, no, nobody nobody's like wants to come to netflix's defense really nobody reading the guardian really knows much about grand Hancock. I mean, I'm sure there are some people that do. I, I read the guardian, uh, pretty regularly because it's, you know, the free. Um, <laughs> but, um, my, my guess is that, you know, they're just, they're doing what, what, you know, I mean, someone's job was to write that article. Um, and it's, it's an editorial piece. It's not, you know, the guardian is like, funded by um contributions from readers and um yeah a small amount by paper sales probably still and then by ads you know so you, you click on the most dangerous show on netflix yeah uh, um you know and they they sell you some bed bath and beyond stuff or what, whatever <laughs> algorithm gets you and and you know no one no one really gets hurt in the process and also like nobody really changes sides like the people that already pretty much believe what's in there are like yeah you know this guy he doesn't know what he's talking about but like also like who the fuck is reading the guardian that is like a serious student of archaeology you know like what difference does it make so i don't know i i it's sort of like a i'm i'm nonplussed maybe just by the whole scenario um i certainly don't have a lot of interest in in graham hank i mean you know it's it's entertaining but you heard it once you heard it a million times uh, the yeah. whole like yeah. all those stories are in the you know just recycled and and updated um i went to the used book warehouse that i've sent you guys pictures from a few times um and uh <laughs> I, I was there because I went home to visit my family for Thanksgiving um, with my girlfriend. And I was like, oh, we should go to this used book warehouse. It's a lot of fun. 
and I went to the paranormal shelf, which it's, it's really, it's great. It's got a lot of, there's always like six or more copies of Charles Berlitz Bermuda triangle with Bill Moore. But, um, the Von Daniken shelf is just off the hook. Yeah. Like, it's so many books, you know, and, and looking at it, I was just like, Oh, right. That's, that's yeah. You know, Graham Hancock. It's the same thing. It's always had that popular appeal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that, that's my take, you know, I, which I, I don't think is a very, you know, hot take. Um, but that, that that's where I land on it. I think like, it, it's just, it's so polarized now because, because uh, mainstream media outlets really do are, are like really like keyed up about like anybody pitching like an alternate anything because of the like last couple of election cycles and how like wild that has been for, you know, for older folks to see, I guess. Um, I mean, I, yeah, it's almost like, it's almost like Graham Hancock is like, is like playing to them in a way. Yeah. You know, yeah. It's a dance for more publicity. I, I, that's perfect. You're absolutely right. But I also like, I don't feel bad for like, like a guy like Graham at all, you know, like, cause a lot of that, he stuff, wants to play that role, you know? Yeah. I mean, a lot Well, a, a lot of it is rooted in like, uh, racist tropes and, um, you know, colonialist, uh, tropes. Um, a lot of it is like, like I, I don't know, man, like, this guy is like literally doing this to himself and like, you know, living off it and like, like reveling in the controversy. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. Like, so, you know, he's got like a hit show on Netflix. So like, you know, let, let them, if, if that's the witch hunt that like, you know, lib media wants to go on, like fine. It actually like doesn't hurt anybody. It doesn't hurt Graham Hancock. It doesn't hurt the guardian and um, the people you know, sort of like on the opposing teams, you know, or like or opposing sides are rooting for their team. And, you know, they, they can say, no, I'm right because, you know, the Guardian says this and they the other side can say, I'm right because Joe Rogan agrees there's too much authority, you know, and it, it just, it, it's, it's so silly. Um, I guess you could call it a witch hunt, but like, I, I couldn't feel less bad for Graham Hancock. <laughs> I just couldn't. Let's talk about how, how about how oppressed Graham Hancock is real quick. Um, well, first of all, just to say too, like um, Joe Rogan is in, he's actually in the, uh, in oh, the of course documentary. He is. Yeah. You want that cosign you want, I, and Netflix yeah. wants that cosign too, you know? Right. Exactly. I draw um, a huge distinction too, between challenging the authority of archeologists where, you know, I mean, Maybe something happened 15, 16,000 years ago. Maybe it didn't. And saying disregard medical science in the middle of a pandemic. I think those are two very separate things. Exactly. The exactly. Stakes that, are a hell of a lot different. You know? that, that was the thing. As I was listening, as I was driving back here and as I was listening to this thing, and it's not until the, like, the last 30 minutes of the episode, but they slowly start getting into it. And then it's like all of a sudden they start talking about COVID. And it's like, and I knew it was going to happen. I was like, they're going to start talking about COVID. It's going to happen. Like, it's just, you just know what you're hearing. And it's like, and it's almost like you, you to be in that community, you just got to, you know, you, 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 you have to be anti-vaccine or you have to be, you know, it's like you, you have to have that as, as part of your merit badge to be in that community. 
you know. Can you imagine going out to dinner with these fucking people? <laughs> you know, it's like you're just trying to get you know get, what get your after dinner espresso or something like that, and and this fucking guy starts going on about you know. <laughs> you don't have to imagine that, Chris, because in in June in Asheville, North Carolina, you can go to the Cosmic Summit. Uh, you, will it be to, truly it, cosmic? If you it will it will be, and you could see Graham Hancock himself, and you and and to get in, you only have to pay five hundred ninety nine dollars. I'll I'll do that to learn the ancient secrets of the lost civilization. I'd say that's worth it. <laughs> a bargain at any price. Um, yes, <laughs> yes. Wow, it just kind of blows my mind. And, and and when I heard about this, this they talked about it on the on the episode, the Joe Rogan episode. I was like, oh, I'll check this out, and maybe maybe I want to go because you know, uh, you know, it's like not that far away. And for me, and I look at it and I'm like, no, I'm not paying six hundred dollars for this. But there will be people that will. Who's it? Who else is in the mix there? They got it's got to be an undercard, like any good. Uh, well, uh, Rand- Randall is there. Mm-hmm. Uh, he will be there. Uh, Micah Hanks will be there. Mm-hmm. Of course, Micah is in Asheville. And there's a lot of other people that I don't know. You know, L- Lieutenant Colonel Matthew Lohmeyer. He's a Lieutenant Colonel. Why is there a Lieutenant Colonel? And I, you know, uh, there's some uh, some lady on here that is, she's like a YouTube. she's like a YouTuber. There's a lot of adventure hats, I'm yeah, saying. That's, yeah, yeah. That talks about uh, yeah, Johanna James. Johanna is a UK comedic actress and alternative history researcher who questions historical orthodoxy with unforgettable charm and wit. 153,000 YouTube followers at Funny Old World. That is uh, some criteria. Yeah, I know. There's Lieutenant Colonel. Lieutenant Colonel Lohmeyer is a former commander in U.S. Space Force. Oh, they actually talked about him on the episode. Air Force Academy graduate and fighter pilot. He was relieved of his duties in 2021 for writing a book encouraging reform of the U.S. military. Which, by the way, he was talking about how the the U.S. military has become woke. That was his book. <laughs> so it wasn't because he saw too much about the UFOs or something like that. It was just no, he's a political hack. Okay. Apparently not. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's some other folks we know in this There's lineup too. There's some people too. that we know, yeah, and are friends with even. But uh, from the other side, though, something that bothers me is kind of like the me and Adam talked about this a lot. This the smugness that a lot of the establishment press and and um, professional skeptics have about you know why this infatuates people, and and we're just talking about how. You know, these are like these ultimate really big questions about the origin of humanity and civilization and all these kind of things. And like these are always going to interest people because they're really big questions that aren't going to be answered by the Academy. But I think the healthy way is just to kind of separate the two. But there is probably real biases. But as far as like something that I see with a lot of these more speculative types is that it does merge into these like bigger uh, ideologies and a, a lot of it is really about what they see as a Marxist influence on you know diffusionism had to be curved because 
from this dialectical materialist point of view, um, you want to like, you know, observe the development of civilization from primitive through these different stages to capitalism. So a lot of the conspiratorial bent is that this Marxist influenced establishment wants to hide our heritage of this lost civilization from us. And then that gets tied into the ideas that they want to hide the lost technology from us. And then you get like some weird cognitive dissonance where simultaneously they're talking about suppressed hidden technology that would be like clean and limitless, etc. But then a lot of this stuff is really like anti-global warming. So they're like pro-fossil fuel, but into these secret technologies being recovered at the same time. And that's kind of a weird, a weird thing. And I, I've kind of joked with Adam, if some of these people aren't getting a check from like some of these fossil fuel interests, then like, you know, they're, man, they're doing a lot of work like for free. Maybe that's why they're able to not charge, only charge $600. Only $600. Yeah. For the cosmic summit. But there's that ideological thing that I think is kind of a blind spot for, for a lot of people on both sides. Um, well, it's interesting. I mean, you know, it's so strange because a lot of the stuff that we've talked about, and not necessarily on the show, but you and I have talked about Serfiel. It's weird how a lot of things go back to Marxism and, you know, that, that struggle. It's always like kind of back, it's there in the background you know in a weird kind of way mm-hmm. marxism and the reaction to marxism yeah is always kind of in the in the background in a lot of a lot of these these uh in a lot of these fields and like you don't have to you know to to understand the utility of it i mean i'm not i don't consider myself a marxist i don't agree with the prescription but you know the analysis is it's understandable why it's so influential because when you look at like economic conditions, a lot of times they do seem to be primary in like shape the social um, conditions, you know? So, you know, if you have people who are mostly nomads, they usually have a pattern of life based on that because of, you know, how their economics are set up. And that goes with, with all peoples, you know? So it's to totally discount the way of looking at things is, is, like pretty ignorant you don't have to necessarily agree with a, a prescription for what an ideal society should be etc but to look at like economic things as primary is pretty fruitful and there's usually a religious angle that those who oppose academic authority tend to be fundamentalist in their religious beliefs yeah and yeah. and equally the, the academics tend to be tend to be large a atheists who know for certain that there is no supernatural anything and have a an incredibly annoying smug certainty about something that you certain you can't be certain about i remember um christopher hitchens just like being absolutely sure that we don't have a soul you can't know that, man. There's, you haven't done any scientific research for that. No, that that is your own personal prejudice. And it can be just as fundamentalist as the people who are 100% sure of what happens that you go to the judgment after you die. You know, 
they're very set in their ways. Yeah, it's not an answer you're going to find in academia. Just like you're probably not going to find the answer you're looking for about whether there's a lost civilization there either. And people who are going to engage in speculation should know early on and acknowledge early on, this is speculation. It's really hard to prove things that happened even fairly recently. But when you go back pre-Ice Age, it's lucky when you can prove anything at all. We're yeah. speculating, you know, and be yeah. speculative. That's that's fine. But don't act like your speculative theory is the same as something that's been proved with physical evidence that can be analyzed and peer-reviewed. Because it's yeah. not. It's, it's not the same thing, you know. And the big thing is that there, the big thing I always stress is that there is an acknowledgement by enough of the speculative types of how young archaeology as we know it is and all the excesses that happened for hundreds of years before because basically antiquarianism before archaeology was nothing but Graham Hancock's, <laughs> you know. So yeah. you had that, you know, with their pet theories, with comparative mythology, um, with, without Rosetta Stones, without understanding Mayan hieroglyphs, just, you know, guessing and looking at pictures and, you know, it was, it was yeah. really, uh, it's you know. Kind of the irony of it, though, too, because if you think about it, like Heinrich Schliemann, Schliemann, I mean, he was not anything that you would call a trained archaeologist, but he found Troy. Right. Just by reading Homer. And people said that, you know, Troy didn't actually exist. Yeah, so it has to start somewhere. It has yeah. to, you know. yeah. It, well, and then maybe conversely, you know, the archaeological establishment should recognize these like deeper philosophical and spiritual needs people were trying to answer. Yeah, I think the best if you want to talk about Atlantis, I think the best theory for Atlantis is that it was Crete. That's probably my that's probably my go to. Now, does it mean that like Atlantis was uh necessarily a real place i think atlantis was a memory of many lost civilizations that had happened you know for thousands of years before you could have had an ice age civilization that disappeared you know also there's speculation that there was this huge flood in the black sea that basically created the black sea and there was a civilization there that disappeared uh, and then Crete, you know, was a lost civilization. I mean, honestly, if we're going to talk about lost civilizations, you know, we we the, the last episode about the history in the Bible, Babylon was lost, Assyria was lost, all these places were lost until the, they found the codices and they were able to to translate them. You know, all that stuff, information was lost. You didn't know, only thing you knew about those civilizations was what was written in the Bible. That was it. So it's not impossible that we could find some kind of lost civilization. The concept itself, I think, is pretty sound. But there is this, like, drive for some of these people to prove this idea that there was one... right cedar right. right civilization right yeah 
Yeah, um, it gets complex as to where that actually And it's a religious-like motivation to prove this. Well, you know where it comes from. It comes from Freemasonry. That's where <gasps> it comes from. Oh, my. Let's just, let's just say it. I mean, that's where it comes from. You know, I mean, I think a lot of this is guys that are, you know, they want to, they, they're in the lodge, they're taught a certain thing, and they want to make fit what they were taught in the lodge. I think that's what it is. I think a lot of it is that. Now, where does free some Freemasonry get that? Maybe Freemasonry gets that from some reliable source, or maybe it's just so dark and so remote that like John Bonnet Ramsey, you may never know exactly what the <laughs> fuck happens. So I tied it in. So here you go. Every we we tied we we tied in the murder. So, they don't want you to know, man. They don't want you to know about Atlantis or John Bonnet. Ramsey. They don't want you to know. Read, but read Program to Kill. You'll you'll know the truth, right? Um, let me read this by uh, Mike Hughes real quick. I'll, I'm not going to read this whole thing, but just mostly. I just want to get kind of the point across, but uh, this is a thread that he put on Twitter, I think yesterday or two, two days ago. He says, I was a huge Van Donneken fan as a kid, devoured all the books. My dad's friend rented a 16 millimeter print of the movie and showed it at his house. I was convinced. That's a party. Then my dad and I watched the Nova special that basically skewered his books. What broke my mind was when the documentary showed a runway pictured in EVD's book, some runway, same runway, same angle, and then a, fo- a foot stepped into the frame. The ru- quote-unquote runway was only a few feet long. My first reaction was anger. It couldn't be true. My mind rebelled. But it was true. Von Donneken was a liar and a grifter. Years ago, I read a couple of Graham Hancock's books. Unlike EVD, these seemed to be more factual and reasonable, but there was that lingering sense of arrogance that Hancock considered himself a renegade scholar and crusader against quote-unquote establishment archaeology. That used to appeal to me, but then I started pulling away from conspiracy culture, and I realized Hancock was trafficking in his own brand of conspiracy mongering that academics were hiding a vast truth about our past, a truth that only he and others labeled cranks were smart enough to discover, and they were being ridiculed and debunked because mainstream archaeologists were aligned against the staggering hidden truth about an ancient civilization wiped out by a cataclysm. I kept thinking about that foot and the runway. But I don't believe Hancock is a complete charlatan like EVD. I know how easy it is to be to cherry-pick evidence to fit a theory because I was once a conspiracist. It feels good to find a data point, it's a buzz and the more you dig in the more you are tied to your theory it becomes your identity especially if you write books you can't just say well maybe i was wrong about a few things there's no listening to your critics they are the enemy so you get more vociferous well-meaning criticisms are are seen as assaults on your very character the cycle of attack and offense becomes inescapable you must find further evidence and dismiss anything contrary to your thesis this is exactly what happened to Hancock. So you lash out, debate me on Rogan, you cry, as if any academic would waste their time or that ignorant knob on that ignorant knob's podcast. And when they don't, you cry, see, they're afraid of the truth. Rinse and repeat. And here's where things take a dark turn. 
Hey there, Graham. We'll listen to you, says some dude with a podcast that regular co- regularly covers DMT, UFOs, alternative measure- medicine, and other fringe topics despised by the know-it-all mainstream smarty pants academic types like the real powers that be are like the real powers that be and then he says globalists in parentheses you know the ones pumping us full of dangerous vaccines of pandemic peddlers big pharma because if they are hiding our true history then everything is a lie including their woke agenda come on over here graham it's warm by the mic and and we get you we won't ask you hard questions we'll just we'll just join you in calling out those know-it-all truth concealers we'll rail against them right alongside you bro we'll help you sell books We'll pimp your Netflix special. We too are marginalized and, ex- and excluded. And I won't go on from there um, and read the rest of it, but you guys can find that on his Twitter if you want to read the rest of it. But, um, you know, I, I think it shows his point is that, you know, here's Graham Hancock, and now all of a sudden he's getting involved with all these. I mean, it's basically just another kind of... It's a ready-made audience yeah, is what it yeah. is. Well, it's almost like a gateway drug type of thing now. You know, it's like, well, if you don't believe what the establishment... that We've got the... We, you know, this this group will accept you type, type of thing. And all of a sudden, this kind of f- almost like friendly debate that's been going on between Graham Hancock and the archaeological community, all of a sudden gets nasty and weird... And then you put in all the other stuff that's going on and all the, the, the tag words like groomer and CRT and all this other stuff. And then it's just, it, it's, it's just going to get mixed in with all the rest of the ugliness. Man, it's unfortunate everything has to be weaponized and everything has to be super hostile these days. Yeah. yeah. You know, I too... My uncle gave me a copy of Chariots of the Gods when I was a kid, and that was a big step for me, too. And, yeah, I later learned of all the problems with it. I never got the racist part, though there clearly is one. But um, I didn't see it as important to the story. But, um, yeah, it. I know Van Daniken was full of crap. That, that's, that goes without <laughs> saying. But it it did get me into being interested in a lot of this stuff. A lot of people, yeah, millions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And you know, it's unfortunate when it has to be that vicious. Just it's the time we live in, I guess. I guess they would. Conversely, the critics would argue that because it's becoming a part of uh, this, you know, larger anti-establishment stuff that has dangerous real world consequences that it you know now is a vicious debate or battle you know so i guess i understand that but but yeah it's uh this new counterculture is very strange you know when i was coming of age in the turn of the century i thought uh we were all going to be like these like cyberpunk rebels you know and (laughs) like now it's uh, everyone's older relatives. <laughs> yeah, it's the best part. It's a lot of people that were the, uh, around for the the '60s counterculture, or were just like a little too young, but maybe had an older brother, or an uncle, or something that you know they got a taste of it uh, by proxy. Uh, it's those people. It's weird. Um, 
Maybe it's all a psyop. Everything's a psyop. Reality is a psyop. I just wanted to throw this out there. Did you guys know this little bit of trivia about Von Daniken? Uh, that he actually opened a theme park in Switzerland? No shit. Uh, was it, it was an ancient aliens theme park. Oh, Did my it, God. Was it not successful? Because you're talking about no. it in past tense. Yeah, it was not. It was oh, only open shit. from 2003 to 2006. Oh, my Maybe God. Maybe he charged $599. It was... <laughs> It was called the the Jungfrau Park is an amusement park located near Interlaken, Switzerland. It opened as the Mystery Park in 2003 and closed in November 2006 due to technical difficulties and low turnout. The park was designed by Eric Von Daniken and consisted of seven pavilions, kind of like Epcot Center, each of which featured one of several great mysteries of the world. Von Daniken opened the theme park to present his interpretations of archaeological sites around the world, claiming that they involve visits from extraterrestrial life. Since 2009, it has regularly reopened for the summer seasons as the Jungfrau Park. Now, I don't know if it's necessarily... Uh, Jungfrau? Yeah, I I, yeah, I guess it's just... It's not anything to do with ancient aliens anymore. It used to be called Mystery Park, but I guess somebody else bought it. It's so such you, a shame that uh, that it happened in the 2000s, because can you imagine how cool it would look if he had done that in the 70s? Like yeah, when, yeah, yeah, right. Have some right. rock festivals. He, he must not have had the money till then. Uh, but I mean, the pavilions were Nazca, Contact, Megastones, Maya, Orient, Vimana, and Challenge. Those were the pavilions. Uh, I love the film. I know it's I know it's bad, but I love the film. Well, that's the thing. There's a place. I really right. feel like there's a place for all this, and maybe like Graham Hancock books will be, you know, on the shelves of that. They already are in in a lot of these places, but I mean, in you know, decades in the future, maybe it'll it'll be kind of like it'll occupy that space that uh, Von Daniken did. Largely, you know, be largely discredited, but kind of have this this quaint um well unless the comets come and hit us again and then we're you know it's it, it might, well then you don't have to worry about it anyway you know but but like you know <laughs> the comets come what difference does it make but they'll store all of graham hancock's books in in the in the seed vault yeah yeah that'll, that'll civilization restart <laughs> it'll be just like go back lee tepe <sighs> anyway <laughs> oh yeah i was gonna she, say she's got she a really great as well we should mention that she's got a really great blog um you know pretty much coming from the same kind of point of view of someone who does question some of these um uh, official narratives but also respects the discipline of archaeology and uh indigenous cultures at the same time and uh, it's a really great uh, article on her blog. It's called uh, Defending the Blinders, Graham Hancock, and the Never-Ending Apocalypse. So it's really great. Uh, you can find that at professorwham.com and click on blog. It's the latest thing from just six days ago. Yeah, I felt like it was much more, you know, even keeled. Uh, there was also a Jason Colavito article about it, too. But that was usual jason colavito type of style yeah why would anyone be 
yeah. interested in right. a lost civilization. Right. Right. So she she's always really interesting when you have her on. Um yeah, she, she did is. a recent um where did she appear? I think it was with Recluse. And she had some fascinating stuff. It was just fascinating. She she coincidentally or Take that as you wish, coincidentally or synchronistically. She used to work with this really off the wall serial killer. Oh, we know. Yeah. Who, oh, yeah. And, Robert Berdello. Yeah, yeah. Yes, we, yes. We, we had her on the show about that. Oh, uh, that's you're right. Times. Yes, yeah. yes. A year and a half or so ago. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And she, we actually, she actually got uh, some response uh, from some people uh, because of that episode. And uh, we did a follow up. I did a follow up with her as well about that. Yeah, she's a really smart person that knows a lot about a lot. Yeah, she does. She does. And, you know, that that experience in and of itself has just got to be just... I mean, it, it was interesting, but I could just tell how rough it kind of was. And just like knowing, having known someone that you hung out with... Yeah. ...that did that, you know, like you hung out with a serial killer. And she's very spiritual you know? and yeah. open to ideas of like right. parasitic entities and ritual murder and weird shit like yeah, that yeah. um and right. not a t- you know not like a weirdo fundamentalist like uh most people you encounter into that kind of stuff so and and, and there was some co- weird connections to the franklin cover-up too. i think that's what she really yeah. details in that that recluse episode he's yeah. talking about she talked about on uh, here too as well a little bit so. i think she said that's gonna be her final word on all that though um her appearance on the farm there i think she's she's done with it i can i can sympathize yeah, I can with, that. with that i can understand too for sure vincent you mentioned that uh you recently uh started researching a local spiritualist church yes yes indeed um i went there we've i'd read a lot about the spiritualists but i hadn't really been aware that there was in the Metro Milwaukee area, a actual spiritualist church, which are not that common these days, that had the lineage all the way back to the Fox sisters and to people like Andrew Jackson Davis. And in fact, there's in the church, there's a saying from Andrew Jackson Davis up in the sanctuary. Um, that the, So these people aren't people that just like got into it through Shirley MacLaine or something. These are people who go all the way back to the 1800s. And it was a fascinating experience. And in an upcoming episode, I should be interviewing a minister from that church and just uh, getting a lot of, a lot of questions answered and a lot of, you know, kind of hands-on research, you might say. And it's, it's been interesting. Go ahead. Do they base in Christian th- in some Christian? Yeah, I was theology? wondering if it has like any trappings of a mainstream use the term church. Church, so yeah. Oh, very much so. Um, they're a Christian organization, but not in the way they're not Catholic nor Protestant. They don't believe in the atonement. Um, without getting deep in the weeds theologically, they believe in Jesus Christ. They would consider themselves followers of Jesus Christ, but they don't believe that he died on the cross to achieve something for the rest of humanity. Mm -hmm. They 
because they don't believe in death the way that pretty much everybody else does. They are much more open to things like reincarnation and that you go on in the, after you die, you don't stop existing. Sounds a little bit like Swedenborgism. I believe Swedenborg was a uh, forerunner that yes, they, yeah, he was, he's not part of the formal lineage, but he was definitely influential in, in the thought. Yes. That was the first time that I'd encountered people face to face who practice these beliefs. Yeah. And it was, it was really nice. And um, I'm definitely going back and I was upfront that, Hey, look, I, I do a podcast about paranormal stuff. I am not like coming here to, you know, wear a wire or something. I'm coming here to observe. Um, but I'm open to what you're saying. And I'd like to learn more about the history of it and about the practice and what it's like today. Cause it's not super common anymore. So you attended a, like a service. Yes. I both attended a service and spoke uh one-on-one with the pastor. Okay. What was the service like? Is it just kind of a traditional format or. It's a bit hard to describe because in some ways it's totally like just a, I don't want to say generic, but it's like a regular Christian church service. Not so much Catholic because there isn't like a mass type aspect, but there's songs. um, There's a brief sermon. There's, it's very, it's very low key. It's very chill. It's a nice atmosphere. It's very not culty at all. It's you don't get that vibe at all. It's very open-minded, but the, and the group is fairly small. I mean, I'd say when I was there, there were about 15 people, including myself, but um, it, it was very welcoming and it was just, you know, it was relaxed, um, kind of informal, but it did have the general structure of, say, a Protestant church service. Was the congregation like um, family tradition based or were these like mostly probably like seeker types who had found this? There was, I'd say it was about a 50-50 split. There were people who would definitely been in this for a long time and had probably inherited those beliefs. Yeah. And there were people who were just drawn to it and, and found, you know, like-minded individuals. That's real interesting. Oh, I I look forward to uh, really, you know, exploring this more fully. So, so, you know, we've, we, we might as well just, you know, pimp Netflix some more, but like there's a, there's a, there's a good movie on Netflix. Um, I thought it was good. It got some bad reviews, but it was interesting. Called Things Heard and Seen. And it's kind of set up like a horror movie. Um, but it's it's like um it, it's it's but it's what's interesting about it is it's based in Swedenborganism. So it's all like about Swedenborg it's it's you know, the because there's characters in it that are at that are modern day Swedenborgians. I don't know how you would call what you would call them, but it's like, I never really knew a lot about Swedenborg and he had some, you know, he had some interesting ideas and I could see how he would be, um, kind of a, um, 
a precursor to spiritualism, especially. Um, but apparently, you know, this movie takes place in upstate New York, and apparently there was uh, there were some Swedenborg adherents in, and I think there still are in upstate New York. And I think this is the time of the burned over district and all that that was going on in the 19th century. Because I think Swedenborg, I think he he was uh, late 18th century, I think. But yeah, it's an interesting movie, and, and you know, you'll if you know nothing about. You'll you'll learn a lot actually about about Swedenborgianism, which you know how many people actually practice that. I don't even I don't even know. That's really interesting to encounter all this stuff as like a living tradition, though, versus yeah, just right. like through this pop culture mediated stuff. Well, I'd eventually I'd originally gotten interested in it when um, I started out to write a book about Charles Murray Spear, who was a fascinating guy back in the 1800s, pre-Civil War. Um, he was this social reformer who was like way ahead of his time. He was an abolitionist. He was for equal rights for women. He was in a lot of things that were very progressive. And he was also, he started out as a universalist minister and then full-on converted to spiritualism. And then things went which in its kind of its heyday, you know, in the like, well, its first heyday in launched, you know, in the burnt over district in the like 1840s. Mm-hmm. And then things kind of went off the rails and he ended up trying to build a electric machine Christ um, that would be a repository for the spirit of God on earth. But it would be like electronic. Well, it wouldn't even be electronic because it didn't even have like chips or anything. It'd be mechanical. Yeah. And he became obsessed with this idea and devoted years of his life to it, but had other people that were right with him believing that they could do this. And they tried to make this machine messiah. And, you know, spoiler alert, it didn't work. But um, it was such a fascinating story that I wanted to do something with that. And that led to a lot of different threads that spiritualism was really influential for a long time. And with a lot of people that you wouldn't expect. Oh yeah. You know, well, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, um, you get into the whole thing with the nine and the seance that they experienced. And I mean, it has threads that go just everywhere. Would I be correct in stating that spiritualism gives rise to theosophy? Yeah. Because doesn't Blavatsky come from the spiritualist community? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Spiritualist yes. Community? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She, yes, she's involved. In fact, they have a picture of her in the church. Yes. P.B. Randolph and basically practical occultism as we know it. And, know. And, and yeah, yeah. And think about just how much theosophy has an influence on all kinds of esoteric ideas. You know, I mean, it was the esoteric idea of, of, the, of the late 19th century. Well, and then later on with those, the development of that stuff, and um, there was the idea that that though you know they thought it it was ultimately misguided, spiritualism was introduced by these higher powers in order to lead humanity into the development of things like theosophy, etc. The hidden hand idea. The, the ascended masters 
which we've had a couple of the Ascendant Masters here with us tonight. Yeah. I want to thank you guys for uh, being a part of this, um, for doing this. I- I'm hoping that we're going to be able to do this again because this has been a lot of fun. Uh, let's just start with everybody where everybody can find you guys. If you know people want to uh, to look for you, Chris Corey, where to people can find your presence. Oh, I'm just out there in the world right now. In the um, ether. Yeah, yeah, but you know, you'll see me when you least expect it. <laughs> Stick it up behind somebody. <laughs> how are the uh, absolutely? How are the digs for uh, UFO ephemera of the past going for you? I haven't posted any in like about a year. It's just kind of like I fell off, you know. And I just I I keep thinking I'm going to start again because I have stacks of cool stuff. Um, but anything notable you want to you want to talk about? Well, I see, I see the communion alien there. On yeah, the I guess piece. I have What's to tell you that? Yeah. about that. Um, Not that anybody can see bring it. the camera so closer, boy. Chris is, uh, for anyone who, who doesn't know, Mr. Vintage UFOs and is quite the, yeah. the collector. Oh, yeah. I think, did you talk about that before? I might the display? have told you when I first got it. It's a, it's a pin display that Avon Books made. And it's got, it still has about five or six of the original, they're like a three inch, two inch, three inch pins of oh, the, wow. the face on the cover. Nice. Um, and it says, believe it or do not, but read it. So uh, I think this would have been like on the counter at like a Crown Books or, or a, yeah. something like that. Um, and I found it on eBay this spring and it was a must have. Send us a picture of that. He's got a, one of those rotating uh, paperback racks too in the back there. That's yeah, cool. I do. It's got some of my uh, comic books and magazines. Have you showed that to, to Metcalf? That, oh, uh, that <laughs> you know it. He was a... Uh, Drooling, he was running wild about it. <laughs> I, 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 I said to him, uh, I was gonna come on and uh, we were gonna chat, do a urine review or something. And he's like, Well, you're gonna talk, you're gonna tell him about the uh, the communion stand up. That's that's your basically your year in the paranormal, right? <laughs> and he's not, he's not wrong, he's not wrong, you know. David, David's usually on to something, uh, but I got, I got a bunch of stuff on the mantle, um some paperbacks and stuff like that just a little shrine it's a shrine yeah, yeah to, to weird stuff the um the it's interstellar cool the, the star children uh sort of like mail away flyers in a frame on the nice on the mantle i think I, david showed it in his presentation that he did for you guys awesome dice and uh vincent where can people find you if you need to tell them about your podcast Yes, I host The Weird Part with Vincent Trewell. Um, you can find it at vincenttrewell.wordpress.com. Um, also, wherever podcasts, whatever podcatcher you use, The Weird Part should be on there. I have a YouTube channel, um, and I show up whenever I can to this fine gathering. And um, I have a novella out there uh, oh. called uh, Cosmic Collision. That is available on Amazon, and hopefully, uh, people who listen to this would probably like it. Um, but yeah, that's where I'm mainly available. And at if you want to reach me, I can be reached at vincenttrewell at gmail.com. Please, if you have stories of strange things, definitely send them to me. Nice. All right. 
Gentlemen, I want to thank you guys um, for for being on. Just to let everybody know, next week we will have Dr. Future. We'll be coming for our usual end-of-the-year episode with uh, with Dr. Michael Bennett. And then I guess we're going to do a year in review as we do, and then that will be the year 2022 in Conspiracy Normal. But, guys, if you want to help us, uh, please, you know, go check out the YouTube channel and also give us a subscription there. And Surfiel can tell you where to find our Patreon if you want to uh, help support us. You can join one of the many uh, fine secret societies that uh, both of these illustrious guests have passed through the ranks of uh, the International Association of Conspiranormalists, the mystic crew of Conspiranormal in the ancient circle of strange realities. Uh, those uh, can be joined at patreon.com slash conspiranormal. Alright guys, well thank uh, Vincent Truewell and Chris Corey for joining us tonight and we will see you next week with Dr. Future on Conspiranormal. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.